passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is found in John chapter 2. Um, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Just to remind those of you, I think most in here are familiar with what we've been doing. We're going through a passage of, I've been going through a series called uh, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a look at the life of Christ so that we might see more fully who he is and that that might change us, might do a work of transformation in the way we worship and the way we live. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So please stand, if you would, in the honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Text will also be on the screen in case you don't have a Bible with you this morning. The Word of God says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everybody serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do believe your word and we believe that the the glory of Jesus, the son of the living God was manifest in this text. So God, help us to see it and help us to savor it. Give us ears to hear the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the key verse in this passage today is that last verse, verse 11. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John, more than any of the other gospel writers, refers to Jesus' miraculous miracles, or his miracles, as signs. As signs. Now, what do signs do? They point to something, or they explain something, or they show something to us. And that's exactly what happens in this passage here today this sign. Now, I want to think about signs for a second. So, kids, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to bring some signs up on the screen here. Tell me what this sign means. So, here's the first one. Doesn't even have any words on it. Don't have to put words on it. What does that sign mean? mean stop i see way in the back here stop right stop you don't even have to put words on it it means stop now if you, in different countries it's going to have a different word on it depending on what language it is but that means stop you know what that sign means some signs are very easy to interpret like this one what does that mean doesn't mean stop although you should be careful it means people walk 
That means people walk across the road you're driving on, so you need to be careful. Okay, so at least drivers know what this sign means, even if kids don't. So we know these signs. These are easy. Some signs are easy for us. Other signs seem a little bit meaningless or inconsequential or unnecessary. Some signs seem to be lost in translation. How about this sign? I'm sure that they meant to be careful not to slip, but it just sort of got lost in translation. Slip carefully. Now, as we think about this sign today, some signs are easy, and I don't necessarily think this sign is the easiest to understand. How is this this sign, how does it demonstrate the glory of Jesus? How does it manifest it? Or some might look at this sign today and look at it as, well, Jesus is just fixing some sort of social problem happening at a wedding, and therefore it's sort of inconsequential. But it's not inconsequential. It's not unimportant. Um, Some may look at this sign today and think it's a bit confusing or feel like it's lost in translation or have no meaning whatsoever. So let's, let's dig into the text today and look at this sign. This is what John calls this miracle. He calls it a sign. And it is significant. It is important. This is Jesus' first miraculous sign. And it has huge meaning packed into it. This is not merely Jesus fixing an embarrassing social situation. This is a sign manifesting the glory of Jesus. And it actually had an effect. His disciples believed in him. So, with that on our mind today, us thinking about this sign... I have a question. How does this sign manifest the glory of Jesus? How can we see and savor that glory? And hopefully my prayer is that each one of us will deepen in our belief, in our faith. And so, and maybe even perhaps by God's grace, someone in here this morning will believe for the first time. Place their hope in Christ for the first time. Now, Let's think a bit more about the purpose of signs here. I said earlier that to call our attention to something, that to point out something other than themselves. The sign is not the end, the goal. The sign is pointing to something else. For John, all the miracles he chooses to put into his gospel have been chosen very carefully. They have a deeper meaning than the sign itself. John chose what miracles he put into his gospel. We know that because John chapter 20, verse 30 says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So we know that he chose what signs to put into the book very intentionally, and he wants us to see them and believe them, and believe in Jesus because of them. He even says that in verse 31 of that same chapter 20 of this of his gospel. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's purpose of this whole book. That's his purpose statement of the book. It comes at the end of the book, but that's his purpose statement of the book. That we might see the signs of Jesus, we might see what John has written about these signs of Jesus, and believe that he is the Son of God, and that we might have life in his name. So by God's grace, prayerfully, this morning we will see what this sign is manifesting. So I'm basically going to give us four points. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and bring them all up. The first sign that Jesus performs manifests the glory of Jesus. Number one, the perfectly obedient son. 
manifest the glory of Jesus, who is the perfectly obedient son. Number two, the agent of new creation. And number three, that Jesus is the source of a greater purification. And number four, that Jesus is the loving bridegroom. This is where we're going today. So I'm just going to walk through each one of these points this morning. First, the glory of Jesus, the obedient son. The glory of Jesus, the perfectly obedient son. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, and by the way, just as a parenthetical note here, Mary is never named in the Gospel of John. Do you realize that? She's never called Mary. She's always called the mother of Jesus. So, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, perhaps Mary was involved in the wedding somehow. We do know that she was there earlier than Jesus and his disciples. Perhaps she's related to the bride or the groom. She seems to have some sort of authority over the servants at the wedding because she, she tells them to obey Jesus. Uh, so we don't know exactly, though, what her role is. But whatever the situation may be, she takes it upon herself to try to resolve this sticky situation. Because, you see, in those days at a wedding feast, to run out of wine was a major social scandal. Now, wedding feasts usually lasted seven days. You thought you'd been to some long weddings. Go to a Jewish wedding back during those days. Seven days long, the feast would last. And during that time, it was the groom's responsibility to provide the wine and all the other necessities for the feast. And to run out of wine was a very scandalous thing. Matter of fact, a a couple would have been labeled. They sort of would have been stigmatized for a long time had the wine ran out at the wedding. Matter of fact, R.C. Sproul, as I was doing some research on this, R.C. Sproul pointed out that there's even some evidence that some people, like the bride's family, would sometimes sue the groom's family if there would be a lack of wine at the wedding. How's that for the in-laws all getting, getting along? Okay, so this was a serious deal. This was a social scandal. It's a big embarrassment. So Mary springs into action here. She comes to Jesus and asks him to take care of it. Now, the immediate question in my mind was why? Why is she coming to Jesus and asking him to take care of the situation? I think it's pretty simple. I think she knows who he is. She knows where he came from. Now, she hasn't seen him do any miracles yet because this is his first miracle. But she knows he's special. She knows he's the Messiah. She knows that he, ha- he can solve this problem. Um, but I think she sort of comes to him, maybe sort of pushing for him to solve the problem a little bit. Now maybe you guys have ever, I mean mothers kind of do that, don't they? I mean a couple that's been married for several years, you know, mom may drop subtle hints. Oh, it'd be really nice to have grandchildren one day at Christmas time, you know, drop little subtle hints here or there, and I don't know if that's what Mary is doing, but she's coming to him, and all she says is, they're out of wine, Jesus. And I think she's sort of coming to him, subtly saying, Jesus, you need to take care of the situation. You have more power. You have more, more, you have a connection with God that no one else has. You are the coming Messiah. So come right now, Jesus. There's a great opportunity to manifest yourself to this party and fix this situation. But Jesus responds with verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now this response immediately makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, if my children, I don't care if they are 30 years old, if they ever call Heather 
Woman, they're going to get it from me. So we look at this and we think, well, what does this mean? Well, part of the problem is we, we need to be careful not to read our social etiquette of calling someone woman into the Jewish cultural setting of that day. It wasn't rude to say woman to a, to a lady. Matter of fact, it was more akin to today saying ma'am or madam. Ma'am or madam. But still it leaves me a little uncomfortable because even though Jesus is okay speaking this way, meaning it's not being rude. Matter of fact, he calls Mary woman again in chapter 19 when he's on the cross. And then he calls Mary Magdalene woman in, in chapter 20. So it's not a rude thing to say woman. But it's also not the word mother. It's not like Aramaic lacked a word for mother or Greek for that matter. There wasn't a, a missing word there. So you just got to fill in woman whenever you're talking to your mom. There was a word for mother and he doesn't refer to her as mother. So on the one hand, he's not rude. But on the other hand, he's also not particularly warm either. Not only that, but he follows up this woman word with, what does that have to do with me? Now again, if my children were to talk like that, I, that'd be called, that pretty much qualifies as sassing off to their mother. So children here, do not go home when your mom says, I need you to clean the room. You say, woman, what does that have to do with me? If you do, I guarantee you, you're going to be in trouble. But Jesus had every right to say it. We know he's not sassing off. Jesus never sinned. He's not showing dishonor to his mother. I think part of it is we have to look at this phrase, what does it have to do with me, and see where else it occurs in the New Testament. It's a very, very difficult phrase to translate. But every time it's used in the New Testament, every other time than this one right here, it's used of a demon speaking to Jesus. Matter of fact, Matthew 8, 29 is a good example. Jesus is coming, and these the demons speak to Jesus and say, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? That's the literal translation. What, does, what do you have to do with us? Or more literally, what do you have to do with me? That's really what it means. It's a very difficult, translate, difficult passage to translate. But it seems to, when we look at the context of all the demonic passages, and we look at this context that it refers to someone speaking to someone else who is intruding upon their realm or domain. So the demons speak to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're, you're intruding upon my realm here, my domain, even though in reality it's not their realm and domain. So as if to say something like, what are you doing here? Or this is nothing, nothing, has nothing to do with you. This is not your affair. I think what we're seeing here is that Jesus is carefully, not rudely, but very directly rebuking his mother as if to say, this is not your place, nor do you have the authority to call out my power. Mom, ma'am, I am not under your authority any longer. I honor you, I respect you, but it is not your place to call out my power and to say, when it's time for me to manifest myself. He's going to end up doing the miracle anyway. So you kind of wonder why he didn't just say, okay, mom, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. 
I think it's because Jesus wants his mother and his disciples to see that his ultimate obedience is not to flesh and blood. It's not even to family nor his mother. His ultimate obedience is to God, his father, and his father's will and his father's timing. That's where Jesus' ultimate allegiance lies. We see something similar in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers come up to him. Now, unlike Mary, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. So their purpose for coming up to him is a little bit different. But they say something similar. They're, they're trying to get Jesus to go down to the, go to the feast in Judea. And they say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 of that same passage says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is already here. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. What does that sound like? It sounds like the exact same thing he said to Mary. My hour has not yet come. It's not my hour yet. It's not my time yet. You see, Jesus clearly to his brothers and to his mother is demonstrating a higher allegiance. He is the son of the living God. He is the perfect, obedient son of the living God. And thus he can only do what his father's will is and do it in his father's timing. No one else directs Jesus' steps. Not mom, not brothers, not disciples. Only Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. John 8, 28, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. Jesus was in perfect sync with his Father, perfectly obeyed him. And I believe that's why he gives Mary this direct, not so warm, yet not rude, rebuke. His mission wasn't to fix weddings, to solve social dilemmas, to become popular, to step dramatically onto the social political scene as some superhero messiah. His mission would only be realized in the Father's timing and the Father's way. And that's why he says, my hour has not yet come. What hour? What hour is he talking about? My hour has not yet come. Well, every time that John uses this phrase, my hour, or it's sometimes translated my time. It's referring to Jesus's, the the ultimate pinnacle climax of Jesus's earthly ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's his hour. That's his time. So when he says to Mary, listen, it's not your role to tell me what to do. I'm in perfect sync with my father, and it's not my time yet. And I don't think his disciples, not until he died and rose again, did they understand what he meant when he kept saying, my hour. And so surely Mary doesn't get it here. Neither do the disciples. And if you want to look at some other places where this phrase is said, it's in John 7, 20, which we read a minute ago, John 8, 20, John 12, 23, John 13, 1, John 17, 1, to name a few. John keeps coming back to this theme of Jesus' hour. And he's always pointing to the cross. Now Mary probably didn't get it, but she submits. She submits to Jesus. She trusted in him. And so she looks over at the servants. I think she still has some sort of faith, well, that Jesus is going to do something. It may not be what I want him to do, 
but he's in control. And so she looks over at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And so then Jesus proceeds to perform an amazing miracle. The rest of our points up here today are in connection with that miracle. It's more than a miracle, though. In this miracle, Jesus is showing us something about who he is and what his mission is. So this miracle is, in reality, is a living parable. He demonstrates in this miracle slash parable what his hour would ultimately accomplish, what his coming death would bring about. And that's the remaining glory in this passage. We, we see the glory of Jesus manifest. So number two there, the glory of Jesus, the agent of new creation. The glory of Jesus, the agent of new creation. Now this story of creating wine from water is the continuation of a very important theme that John develops from the very beginning of his gospel. In John 1.1, what are the first words of John? What are the first words? Kids, what are the first words of the book, of the, of the gospel of John? In the beginning. All right, kids. What book does that remind you of from the Old Testament? Genesis. He's bringing our minds back to the creation account. And in these first chapters, another thing stands out is that John goes out of his way to make mention of time. John, John doesn't really care, or it doesn't seem like he really cares about real specifics on, on time throughout his uh, gospel. But for some reason, at the beginning here, he talks about this happened on this day, and then this happened on this day, and then this happened on this day. You see it in verse 29 of chapter 1, verse 35 of chapter 1, verse 39 of chapter 1, verse 43 of chapter 1, and then here at the beginning of chapter 2. And if you examine those closely, you'll discover that John mentions seven days. Again, what is he drawing our mind to? He's drawing our mind back to Genesis. There's no coincidence here. John is too careful of a writer for that. So there's this creation emphasis. But what sort of creative work is happening at the beginning of the book of John? Jesus is in this process of making all things new. And it begins with his arrival on earth. And it won't finish until the consummation of the ages. But here in this chapter we have new wine. At the end of this chapter, Jesus speaks of a new temple. In chapter 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about what? New birth. And then in chapter 4, he sits with an immoral woman at the well and speaks to her about a new way of worship. This theme of newness is running all throughout the beginning of the book of John. And ultimately, his disciples would see, as they believed in him, how he was turning them into, transforming them into new creations. The old was passing away, the new was coming. So Jesus commands the servants here to fill up six stone water jars. But not just any water jars. These are jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now that has symbolism as well, and we'll get back to that here in a second. Jewish purification rites, however, required washing before meals, and it also required washing of all the dishes and utensils and vessels you would use during the meal. So the pots here were like kitchen sinks or a bathtub even. Not exactly the place you want to draw drinking water from. 
Now, there was such a thing as vessels that were used for drinking water, where water was kept for short periods of time after it was taken out of the well. So if the Jews would drink water, it usually came out of one of those vessels, water that hadn't been sitting around very long, or they drank wine. But we see here Jesus says, go dip some water out of the sink over there. He tells them to fill it up first. Go dip some water out of the sink over there that you use to wash your hands and your dishes and take it to the master of the feast and let him drink it. Now, first, I can only imagine what the servants were thinking. Okay? They must have been a little bit nervous here. And then what the master would have thought had he found out he was drinking out of something that had been dipped out of the purification rite jars. I mean, Jews were obsessed with cleanliness, and that would have been a scandal to drink out of those jars. But I want us to see what's happening here. There's rich symbolism happening here. Jesus is taking something filthy and turning it into something lovely. It says in verse 9, When the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus doesn't just change it to okay wine. He transforms it into the best wine. That's his new creation process. Jesus isn't just making the world better. He's recreating the world as spectacular. He isn't just helping fix broken people. He's taking impure, filthy, unclean sinners and not just fixing us up, but he's transforming us into perfect, holy, righteous saints, co-heirs, and children of God. That's the spectacular new creative work he's doing in each one of us, symbolized here in what he does to this nasty water as he transforms it, not into just wine, but spectacular wine. That's probably the best wine anyone ever tasted. Matter of fact, I think we'll all taste that same wine at the day of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The best wine there is to offer. And one day on his throne, he will declare, as Revelation said, I make all things new. Do you see the imagery here? Do you see and savor water becoming wine? In the Old Testament, God transformed water into blood as a sign of judgment. But now the new has come. At the beginning of his ministry, the new Moses, Jesus, is turning water into wine, symbolizing the grace that is coming through Christ. For he now will be the one who will absorb the wrath of God by shedding his blood. We receive the wine. He pours out the blood. The wine represents his blood. His blood that brings purification. So my next point here in the way we see the glory of Christ manifest is number three. That he is a source of a greater purification. You see, there is symbolism in the wine replacing the purification water. There's rich symbolism here as this wine replaces the water. For the water, all it could do would be, was to clean dirt off your hands or off of a cup. But it couldn't do anything to deal with sin. The water could only give one clean hands to come and to receive food. But it couldn't give someone a clean heart to come and dine with God. The wine is pointing to his death as the ultimate purification for sins that would nullify and replace the Jewish purification rites. We celebrate the Lord's Supper and we drink the fruit of the vine. 
because it's symbolic of the shedding of his blood that becomes a purification for us. So even here early in Christ's ministry, the image of wine is so important throughout the book of John. We see here early in his ministry here, him changing this water to wine, and we see already the symbolism of the old rites of purification fading away and a new means of purification now entering onto the scene. This is what his hour is all about. John 12, starting in verse 27, Jesus says this as he's nearing the moment that he's going to have to go to the cross. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. His hour was an hour set aside by God. A purpose given to Jesus, a mission he was unwaveringly committed to. The hour of his death when he would take away the sin of the world and ultimately bring in a final purification for his people. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. You see, Jesus is showing his disciples and his mother a parable. Now, I'm not saying they got it right away. They didn't get most of Jesus' parables until afterwards. But he's showing them a parable to help them understand what his hour is all about. That's why he pointed out to his mother, my hour hasn't come yet. But I'm going to go ahead and do this miracle here so you'll know what my hour is about. John 6, verse 53 and following, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And then in Matthew we read, in Matthew 26, This is my blood, Jesus speaking, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many For the forgiveness of sins. He says these as he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 12. It says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. But by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls. And the sprinkling of defiled persons. With the ashes of a heifer. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify, and I'm focusing on this purify concept, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the glory manifest here is that Jesus himself is a source of a much greater purification. Jesus, the obedient son, was obedient unto death on a cross, pouring out his blood as the provider of a greater purification so that we might be made new. What a miracle. And I'm not speaking of the water turning to wine. I'm turning, talking about the miracle of you being transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a miracle. And this miracle, a much smaller miracle, points to it. A true sign a sign that has a deeper meaning. But there's one last thing that this first miracle points to that I want to drive home this morning. I do think it's significant that Jesus' first miracle takes place at a wedding. 
Weddings are very significant in Scripture, and there's perhaps no other living parable more powerful than that of a man and woman coming together in holy matrimony because we know that Ephesians 5 teaches us that that union is supposed to be a parable, a living parable of Christ's union with his church. So Christ is the bridegroom. We, the church, are the bride. Now, as I was looking at some of Tim Keller's comments on this passage, I think he made a good, keen observation just on human nature. He says, whenever we go to a wedding, we can't help but think about our own wedding. So whether we're looking forward to our wedding, I remember we went to the wedding of my best friend, and that, that wedding actually caused Heather and I to begin to think more seriously about getting married. And so whether it causes you to think about a future wedding that you hope to be a part of, or maybe you go to a wedding and it reminds you of your wedding. And you look back and you smile and you see these two looking up here and smiling at each other and you're going, yeah, I remember that. You remember back or you look forward to But regardless, when you're at a wedding, you can't help but think of your wedding. And so, as Keller mentions, he says, I imagine that's what's happening to Jesus here. He's here at this wedding and he can't help but think about his own wedding. Not his wedding as he walked the earth. He didn't marry as marry someone like his being said today in some of the news stories that they found some document that said Jesus has a wife. And friends, I hope that doesn't rock your faith. Those silly things are being found all the time. We have the Word of God as it's preserved right here. And we don't have to worry about when someone finds a fragment of a piece of paper. Jesus had no earthly wife, but he did have a wife. He does have a bride. And he can't help but think about a greater wedding day to come. And so that's my last point. The glory of Jesus seen here is that he is a loving bridegroom. The groom, as I mentioned earlier, was ultimately responsible for the provision of the wine. It was the groom's responsibility for there to be wine in abundance so that all those who were invited to the feast had wine provided for them. So too, it is Jesus' responsibility as he pours out his blood to provide the forgiveness for all who are invited to the wedding feast. And those who are invited are only those who are saved through his shed blood. The master of the feast was hired to sort of be a coordinator of sorts. But the shame of a lack of wine would have fallen upon the bridegroom, not the master. And this bridegroom in this story is bankrupt. He had no wine. I think... It's interesting, it points out, they didn't have any left. Mary doesn't come and say, hey, Jesus, there's only a little bit of wine left. He said, there is no more wine. They are bankrupt, empty. He was ruined. He was finished. It was a scandal. But for the grace of Jesus, who intervenes in what is a seemingly insignificant social situation, but for that, this man's empty. This man's a disgrace. And so too, we can only come to Christ when we understand our spiritual emptiness. That we are bankrupt. We have nothing to bring to the table. We're ruined. We are shamed. We are a disgrace. But we have a bridegroom who hasn't failed his job. A bridegroom who provides an abundance to make up for our shortcoming. But even more than that, he provides his own blood and gives us his righteousness to cover up our shortcoming. 
Jesus is not a bankrupt bridegroom. He has no shortage of wine to pour out on his people. Wine also symbolizes joy in the scriptures. The joy of his salvation is abundant and flowing out to his bride. He has come that we might have joy and have it to the full. And his provision never dries up. In one of his last words in scripture, John the Baptist says this. We'll see it later in John chapter 3. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. How does the joy of the wine that Christ provides to us, how does it manifest itself as we see him increase in our life and we decrease? The groom in this wedding here is a failure. The master of the feast in this wedding here, he's incompetent. But in steps Jesus, a better groom, a better master. For he is the bridegroom and he is the master of the feast. For he is preparing a feast for his bride. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In Revelation we see that his bride has made herself ready. Are you ready, church? If not, see this sign today. See it as a manifestation of his glory. See and savor Jesus Christ. And thus, like his disciples, believe. Believe in him. Deepen your faith. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, am I invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Fall on your knees and acknowledge that you are bankrupt spiritually. You can do nothing to save yourself. You have no wine. You are bankrupt. You are ruined. You are sinful to the core. And you can do nothing to save yourself. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. No amount of good works, no amount of good deeds will fill that empty jar. You need a better groom. You need a master to come into your life and to fill you with his wine. The wine of his shed blood that covers you and grants you his righteousness in your place and forgives you of all those sins that you've ever committed. And then you become his bride. And for the rest of your life, you will be made into the likeness of Christ. You'll become pure, as it's mentioned here in Revelation. Your deeds will become pure. So just like Jesus' disciples, see this manifestation and believe. See it and believe. 
That's what this sign is all about. Maybe a little bit hard to grasp it, but it's a clear sign nonetheless. It's not lost in translation. It's not confusing. It's pointing us to the glory of a better groom, of a better master, of Jesus, the obedient son of God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would have your way with us as we have this time of response. Lord, if it be that we need to fall on our knees where we're at and confess our sin to you and recognize and acknowledge that we haven't been seeing and savoring you. Instead, we've been distracted by the many cares of this world. And in this text today, Lord, may we see that even in the cares of the world, something seemingly as insignificant in the large scope of things as a wedding running out of wine, that you are actively involved. And that God, no matter how insignificant it is, you want us to fall on our face and say, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing, nothing, nothing. And I need you. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need you to grant me the grace to be the person you've called me to be. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never placed your hope in Christ, maybe you've done church, maybe you've read the Bible a little bit, maybe you've done some good things and you're hoping that that's sufficient to count with God, I pray that you would hear that those things are insufficient. Lord, I pray that you would cause these people to hear this this morning. So God, we ask that you would move in this place. It's not about us. It's about you. Even the whole wedding feast, unlike our culture where the bride seems to take center stage, on that day in Revelation 19, there'll be no question who takes center stage. Oh, Lord, we'll be, we'll be exalted in a, in a very special way. But ultimately, we look forward to standing around the throne and casting down our crowns and praising the only one who deserves praise and honor from our lips. So now we ask that you grant us grace to respond, move in our midst, and we give the rest of this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.